Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Stablecoins get reshuffled. Who will come out on top? Is Circle the whistleblower behind the NYDFS's investigation in BUSD and Paxos? And for some good news, the NFT market is embracing crypto spring and the numbers show it. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today we're joined by longtime friend of Real Vision, Brian Estes, CEO and CIO at Off the Chain Capital. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, we're going to go deep in just a minute, but first, let's take a look at the latest price analysis. The crypto market cap is up around two percentage points since yesterday. Bitcoin is up just over 2% on a 24-hour basis. It's currently trading at around $22,000. It hasn't been a good week for Bitcoin, obviously, as you can see. Uh, it's down about 4% over the last seven days. Meanwhile, Ethereum is up just over 4% since yesterday. Currently, ETH is trading at roughly $1,500, and it's down about 5% over the last seven days. With that said, let's bring our guest back in. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing, Brian. Hey, Ash. Brian, it's been, uh, it's been a hell of a week here in crypto. Obviously, uh, a lot of news flow. Let me just bring our audience up to speed really quick uh, on the latest stories here, uh, and then we can talk about them a little bit. A great deal has come to light yet since yesterday on the still-developing story of the regulatory actions against Paxos. First, it seems that rival stablecoin issuer Circle, the company that founded USDC, is reportedly the whistleblower behind the complaint against Paxos. Uh, According to this is this is uh, to the to the Department of uh, Financial Services in uh, New York, uh, also known as NYDFS. According to Bloomberg, who first reported the news yesterday in the fall of 2022, Circle reported that blockchain data revealed that Binance did not have enough collateral to back the tokens it had issued. When Paxos exits the BUUSD, excuse me, the BUSD business, it will leave an enormous $16 billion hole in the $136 billion stablecoin market, which leaves an opportunity for Circle, obviously, to expand the market share of its stablecoin or the stablecoin they created, I should say, USDC. Binance, of course, delisted USDC last year from their exchange. But according to Coindesk, there are other players looking to get their slice of the pie as well. MakerDAO's decentralized stablecoin DAI could be a player in the space. And of course, Tether will be looking to grab market share as well. Indeed, according to Coindesk, BUSD USDT trading pair spot trading volume surpassed $3 billion uh, in just the past 24 hours. That's the largest daily volume since the FTX implosion and subsequent market crash in November. Brian, obviously a lot of details, a lot of news flow here, but I wanted to get your opinion on what's happening. Big picture in the space. It certainly feels uh, like we're in the middle of a regulatory crackdown. I believe Bloomberg has used exactly that uh, phrase in a number of their headlines. How do you think about what's going on here? Big picture. Yeah, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning and then talked about a carpet bombing in the crypto yeah, I industry. And I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. You know, the um, SEC, the OCC, the Fed, you know, the, the regulators are starting to crack down on the industry. And I, I don't know if it just all comes from the fact that FTX blew up um, and, you know, they're kind of embarrassed, you know, of what happened because they didn't properly regulate FTX. And they allowed that offshore entity to 
advertised in the U.S., gain access to U.S. customers, and now they're trying to, you know, protect themselves, make themselves look better by cracking down on the good players in, in, in the industry. But um, it's just, it's very concerning, you know, for, you know, I, I've been in the industry since 2014 and the, the, the players, the, you know, the good players have been asking for proper guidance and regulation and the, like a framework to build our companies. And, you know, over the last nine years I've been involved, you know, we, we haven't got that, you know, we haven't been issued, you know, the, the regulatory clarity that we need to build our companies and what's happening is that you know people are moving their companies offshore and you know outside the purview of the sec and that's not good for investors and good for u.s consumers because what happens is you end up with a situation like ftx right brian we were talking about this a little bit off camera uh you're an investor in the space obviously uh tell us a little bit about what people are looking for what they need what they want in terms of this regulatory clarity uh, and why you feel they're not getting it yeah, we, we just need basic definitions. What is the security? You know, what is a commodity? You know, the SEC has come out and said, like, Bitcoin's a commodity. Um, but, you know, they used to say Ethereum was a commodity. And now they're kind of saying it's a security since it switched over to proof of stake. So we just need basic definitions of what's a security, what's a commodity, how these things, you know, should be regulated. You know, just look at Bitcoin, for example. The IRS classifies Bitcoin as property for tax purposes. Um, FinCEN's calls it a currency. Um, you know, the SEC calls it a commodity. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's, you know, these are all U.S. government agencies and they define Bitcoin as something different depending on what agency you talk to. And so we just need clarity on what these assets are and how they should be regulated so that we can build our companies around this new technology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is this just a challenge? I, I imagine uh, what someone from the SEC would say about what's security, they would say, well, there's the Howey test. That's been the established practice uh, for decades now for understanding whether or not something is a security. Is what's needed here new legislation? And are you optimistic we're gonna get it? Um, I'm not optimistic that we're gonna get it. Um, I had a meeting in, a few months ago at the Texas Blockchain Summit. Uh, we met with Senator Ted Cruz for a little bit, and that was one of the questions that we posed to him, like, you know, you know do you expect clarity or do you expect some regulation to be passed? And, you know, and he wasn't, you know, confident at all they would have any regulations over the next couple of years um, during the Biden administration. And I don't think it's because of the Biden administration. I just think that there's just, you know, not enough people who are knowledgeable in Congress on how to regulate this. You know, you know, from what he said, only about 15 to 20% of Congress understands what Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain technology is. The other 80% just don't know and they haven't made a decision and they don't know how to regulate something they don't understand. And so I just think it's gonna take more time, you know, for them to, you know, get up to speed so they could um, apply proper regulation, pass proper laws to help, you know, this industry flourish. 
Yeah. So let me ask you this. One of the most basic rules of life and being an investor, of course, is that you find the world as it is and not as you wish it to be. Uh, you say that, obviously, uh, you're not terribly optimistic that we're going to get this relief uh, in terms of new legislation in the short term. So, Brian, how are you positioning yourself? How are you thinking through uh, these challenges that exist uh, here in the short term or the intermediate term, I guess, depending upon how you interpret it? Okay. So um, I, I'm the CEO and CIO of Off the Chain Capital. We're a private investment fund that invests in value opportunities in the blockchain space. So we're doing what, we, what we've always done. We're looking for undervalued investment opportunities in the space. Um, for a number of years, we've been buying like Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims, which gives us exposure to Bitcoin at discounted prices. And then most recently with the blow up in FTX, Celsius, BlockFi, you know, Voyager, you know, people have Bitcoin trapped at these in, in these platforms, and that's perfect opportunity for us. We're able to buy these bankruptcy claims, you know, which basically gives us exposure to Bitcoin and other digital assets at a discount. So, you know, so we're doing the same thing we've always done. But if you're a, you know, you know, if you're a startup company in the space, I mean, you're you have to allocate a certain amount of your capital, and it's get. That the allocation is getting larger and larger just to fight with the regulatory regime that's out there. You know, you're you're trying to build a company and then you know the SEC comes in and you know starts fining you or starts, you know, they they ask you to come and register and and work with them. And when they do, when you go in there and you know work with them, all they do is fine you. So it's you know, it, it's just not a good working environment. And we, you know, these companies that are trying to build new innovative platforms and you know using this blockchain technology all they're asking for is some clear guidance on you know what the framework is so that they could build their build their companies yeah you know it's so interesting we were talking a little bit this about this <clears throat> excuse me off camera uh, and how you have people out there who are entrepreneurs who want to be good actors who say regulate me uh tell me what line to stand in tell me what forms to fill out and unfortunately the answer to that question uh seems to be well, obscure at best might be a, a polite way of putting it. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Yeah, and then it takes you down the rabbit hole of why, right? Why is the SEC and, you know, why are they, you know, against this technology or why are they, you know, trying to slow it down? And when you fall, when you go down that rabbit hole, it, it leads you to the, you know, they're protecting the establishment. You know, they're protecting the banks and protecting the established players, you know, from losing their market share. And the the way I look at this is when, you know, we enter we we invented a new piece of technology called voice over internet protocol about 12 years ago, VOIP. And voice over internet protocol is kind of like what Bitcoin is, but VOIP is is voice. And Bitcoin is money over internet protocol. But when VOIP was invented, the long distance companies, their business models went to zero. MCI and WorldCom, they went bankrupt because all of a sudden doing a voice call was free. And that's how I look at blockchain technology. You know, the world spends over $1 trillion a year moving our money around. And the $1 trillion is in fees. We pay correspondent banking fees, Visa and MasterCard fees, um, you know, wire fees, SWIFT fees. And that $1 trillion a year is going to go down to 
you know, go down 99% as soon as we're on a blockchain standard. And because moving our money through money over internet protocol or through the internet using blockchain is basically free. And so the established players, the established banks that are out there, they're trying to protect their, you know, their, their business models. And it's just, you can't protect it. They either have to change or, you know, go out of business. I was just going to ask you about that. If we could zoom the camera out a little bit here uh, and talk a little bit about things that are away from the news cycle, about the big picture case that you see for Bitcoin and for blockchain technology more generally. You're one of the best in the business, I think, at explaining this 50,000 foot view, particularly to people who have traditional financial backgrounds. All right. So what's the question again, more specifically? So what's the case? What's the case for Bitcoin? What is it that gets you so excited about it? How do you think about it? What are the mental models that you apply uh, to understanding Bitcoin and understanding its future growth trajectory? When I first learned about Bitcoin back in 2014, coming from traditional finance, I, I thought like most people, like this was a total scam. You know, like what is this internet funny money that's out there? And after I dove into it and read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, I just understood how we were going to rebuild our entire financial system using this blockchain technology because it's more efficient. And with efficiency, you get lower cost and faster transactions. And our banking system, this legacy system, has been around for, you know, the software that we're using is, you know, 40 to 60 years old, depending on what if you're using Cobalt or Fortran or Pascal. And you know the the banking system is built on ancient architecture, and blockchain technology allows us to have faster transactions, cheaper transactions, transactions that are more inclusive. Um, you know, you know, like Bitcoin doesn't care, you know, where you live, what color you are, what nationality you are. You know, Bitcoin just doesn't care. You know, it's like you know when you when you go into a bank. You have to have a certain amount of money to open up a bank account. You have to have, you know, certain criteria to be in to be in the system. And you know, using blockchain blockchain technology, it's you know, it's open, free, you know, it's transparent, and you know, and that's what the world needs. It needs a, you know, a software solution to allow people, the underprivileged, have more access to the banking system so they could raise themselves up out of poverty. Yeah. Uh, talking of blockchain technology more broadly, uh, outside of Bitcoin, I wanted to talk a little bit here about uh, what's happening in NFTs. I wanted to just switch gears and focus on some of the positive news that's happening in this space, because I think these data points are quite interesting. According to DAP Radar's most recent report on NFTs, uh, the claim that NFTs are dead and gone are looking a little bit foolish right now. According to the report, the trade volume is already at $870 million for 2023. That's a 68% rise since the NFT market's November low. Uh, and leading the charge are the six largest projects owned by Yuga Labs, the team behind Bored Apes, Yacht Club, CryptoPunks, and MeBits, which constitute a whopping two-thirds of the market cap for the Ethereum NFT market. That's a pretty high number. I was actually a little bit surprised that it was that high. Uh, but it's not just Yuga projects that are pumping and leading to this recovery. DAP Radar's report finds that new collections are driving the recovery in the market. Some collections are posting triple-digit gains. Pudgy Penguin's market cap grew 260%. Uh, DGEN's Tunes collection grew 204%. And Azuki gained 114 
percent. Brian, are you interested in the NFT space? Is this something uh, that you find intriguing? I know we've got ordinals right now happening on the Bitcoin network. That's very controversial within the Bitcoin community. What's your take on the NFT space? Yeah, I've been watching NFT since day one. The problem I have with NFTs is I can't figure out how to value them. And so, you know, we're a value manager. You know, we, we want to make investments in, you know, a certain asset at, you know, a 50% discount to what we think they're worth. And right. I just can't figure out how, what an NFT is worth. Um, you know, it's just, you know, I don't know if we're too early. We just haven't figured it out. But you know, I look at a lot of NFTs as just art. And I don't know how to value art either. What's the difference between, you know, a hundred million dollar painting or, you know, a hundred dollar painting? And you know, I'm just not an expert in that area. But I do see value in certain utility NFTs that are out there. Um, I'm not a gamer either, but yeah, you know, I can see that. You know, in in games, you could have a limited supply of certain objects like swords or whatever right. you need to be successful in that game. And so those those items in that game, you know, because they're scarcity, they have value. So the more people that use that game and the more people who want those scarce items, the more valuable those scarce items become. So, you know, I, I can see, you know, value in, you know, those like utility NFTs. Right. Um, but like I said, you know, I don't know how to value those, you know, don't, you know, cause it's different per person. Like someone that's gaming 12 hours a day that, that, you know, that asset in that game is worth more than someone who, you know, games one hour a week. So right. it's, you know, it's very arbitrary on how to value these things. Yeah, exactly. I think that's well said. A, a sword in a game to me has zero utility because I'm not a gamer. Uh, but to someone who plays that game and spends 10 to 12 hours a week uh, in that world, or maybe 10 to 12 hours a day in the extreme case, it has uh, a very different value proposition. So it is it is an interesting point. I'm incredibly bullish on the technology. I have the faintest idea how to value it either. Uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, that uh, you know I've I've expressed uh, I don't want to say skepticism, but just a, a sense of just confusion about the market. You know what what makes an NFT worth three hundred thousand dollars versus thirty thousand dollars versus three thousand dollars versus thirty dollars. I mean, again, it's it's very subjective. I think the art aspect of it's really cool. I mean, I think that the, there are a lot of very smart, interesting young people uh, in the space creating stuff that's really cool. Uh, and I suspect, as you said, it's just incredibly early in that space, and we're probably going to see more uh, of that development in the future and probably a, a more robust mechanism for modeling things uh, from a financial perspective as well. But by the way, talking about growth, one of the, the things that uh, I hearken back to whenever I talk to you is uh, your view of the way that S-curves work, because I think it's a really powerful interpretive lens to look at technology in general, to look at Bitcoin, to look at blockchain, uh, and to just look at the way that the space is unfolding. Tell us a little bit about S-curves, the role it plays in your thinking as an investor, uh, and why you think it's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been using S-curves for over 30 years. I first learned about them when I was studying at Cambridge University as an undergrad. And, you know, basically what an S-curve is, it's the amount of time it takes for a new technology to go from 0% adoption to 10% adoption. It's the same amount of time it takes that new technology to go from 10% adoption to 90% adoption. And when you look at Bitcoin, for example, it was started back in 2009. By 2019, 10% of U.S. households owned Bitcoin. And so it took 10 years to go from 0 to 10% in the U.S. And you could project that out. So what that means is that by 2029, around 90% of households in the U.S. will own Bitcoin or have exposure to you know, crypto assets. And it's been playing out that way. 
You know, the most recent study that we saw was a Motley Fool study. They surveyed 3,000 of their clients, and it was a little bit over 3,000, but, um, you know, it showed that 56% of their clients owned Bitcoin. And if you look at last year, 2000, I guess this is 2021 data, the Biden administration put out data that 47 million households own crypto assets like Bitcoin. So there's 120 million households in the U.S. So 47 divided by 120, that's a very large percentage of households that have exposure. And that's 2021 data. And so we're on this mass adoption of Bitcoin and digital assets. And like I said, by it's projected, you know, using S-curve analysis by, nine, by 2029, that over 90% of households will have exposure to Bitcoin and these digital assets. And that's just here in the U.S. If you look outside the U.S., today it's less than 1%. So the, the U.S. is the leader in this technology and the, the adoption of this. And so, you know, the, the rest of the world will catch up, but it's still very, very early for investors to, you know, if you don't understand what this is, you know, you need to learn about it. It's the, it's the future. This is the technology that we will use to clear transaction, financial transactions through the internet for the next thousands of years. And the reason this is important is because 30 years ago, when we built the internet, we built it incorrectly. We didn't have the software needed to transfer value through the internet. And so right. what we did is we built the internet on top of traditional banking and credit cards using a piece of software called SSL. Well, that software you know, requires a fee or a toll every time you use it. Every time you use a bank or a credit card or PayPal to send money through the internet, you have to pay them a toll. And so, but the internet wasn't supposed to be built that way. It's supposed to be a peer-to-peer -peer network. And that's what blockchain technology allows. It allows for that peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value through the internet. And so what all the VCs are doing, they're rebuilding the internet to, and they're fixing the problem that was created 30 years ago. Yeah, it's so interesting to the way that you describe that is a technology that began as peer-to-peer -peer that then became highly centralized. You can think about that centralization uh, in terms of the traditional financial system. You could also think about it in terms of a, a few very large companies out in Silicon Valley controlling vast swaths of the internet. And now this idea that blockchain technology is about the evolution or almost the de-evolution back to this prior state of a true peer-to-peer -peer network, uh, which I think in many ways is the best metaphor to describe uh, the way that the communications architecture under blockchain at least can uh, work. Yeah, it's like I said, you know, it's the future. We're, we're rebuilding the internet to fix the problem that was created 30 years ago um, by having to centralized financial institutions clear our transactions. And we're taking it off of the banking and credit card system and we're putting it on blockchain technology which allows the you know direct transfer of value through the internet from person to person or business to business and that's where we need the clarity you know circling back to earlier in the conversation you know we need clarity from the regulators on how we build this technology out and you know we're just not getting any of the clarity that we need to, to build this out Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.
You know, Brian, talking about the internet, talking about the future, I wanted to read you a tweet uh, that I put out this morning uh, because it really kind of encapsulates my feelings about this space. And, and I think in, in many ways it sounds as though you feel similarly to it. You know, I was tweeting this morning about all the regulatory carpet bombing, to use the great phrase from the Wall Street Journal, that seems to be happening in the crypto space right now. Uh, and I'd, I'd remarked that I was, I was surprised that the price action had been so resilient in the short term. And then I, I sent this tweet out. I don't know if we can bring this up on the screen, uh, but I said, <clears throat> longer term, I'm more optimistic than ever on crypto. Back in 2000, when I, when I was one of the young guys on Wall Street, I remember the old guys asking me basically, hey, kid, that, inter that, that internet thing was cute. What are you going to do with the rest of your life now? Well, I'm still here. You know, to me, it's, it's interesting for two reasons. First, the idea uh, that, uh, that the growth potential is similar to the internet in terms of uh, blockchain having this capacity to dramatically expand the number of users uh, it has fundamentally. But second, you know, I, I, I really agree with your point that effectively blockchain really is the internet, right? Blockchain is version 3.0 of the internet. It's this build out of the architecture of the infrastructure to do economic transactions, to do trust transactions, uh, and to manage identity in a truly distributed decentralized way. You're 100% right. And that's what's scary, I think, to the government and these centralized financial institutions, you know, that they don't want to give up control of the money. And, you know, that's where the fight's going to be. It's going to be a fight for freedom versus control. And, you know, I, you know, I'm very optimistic that freedom and liberty, you know, will, you know, will, you know, will come out ahead. But it's just going to be a fight, you know, to, to get there. And um, what was it, Gandhi? Uh, there's a famous quote by Gandhi. What is it? First, they they ignore you, then they laugh at you, and then they fight you, and then you win. And we're we're in that fight phase right now. You know, the government and the centralized, you know, these large banks, these large financial institutions, they're they're fighting against this, and they're actively like de-platform or de-banking companies that are out there that participate in this. You know, I, you know, it's, you know, I've heard from a number of my friends that, you know, their, their bank accounts are getting closed down. And so this is the way the banks are trying to protect their turf. They're just trying to eliminate the threat and it's not going to work. I mean, eventually, you know, freedom and liberty will prevail. Uh, Brian, speaking of giving up control, I want to give up control here for a minute to our viewers uh, and our listeners who've been sending some questions. What do you say? Can we do some viewer questions? Sure. All right, great. Uh, first question comes to us uh, from JP Stanley from YouTube. Brian, do you think the SEC will start to come after Ethereum next? Interesting question. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, the, uh, Gary Gensler um, mentioned, I you know, after they converted from proof of work to proof of stake that, you know, potentially Ethereum could be a security. And if you look at Ethereum's original launch, they did it through an illegal initial coin offering that wasn't registered with the SEC. So I would think that Ethereum is, you know, you know, at jeopardy for being, you know, I, I don't know what the SEC could do, but, you know, I, I think, you know, that, you know, Ethereum is a centralized blockchain controlled by a foundation and I would think that the SEC has some people to, to go after there. Unlike Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is not run by a foundation. It doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have a board of directors. All it is is a piece of software. Yeah, there, there's no one to go after after, you know, go, you know, if you want to sue Bitcoin, there's no one to sue. Um, if you want to go after Ethereum, there is a foundation 
that you know controls Ethereum. So there are people you can go after for that. I guess one of the questions is, as you suggest there, what would the remedy be? Uh, would it be uh, the equivalent of uh, kind of a slap on the wrist, paying a $30 million fine, uh, as we've seen uh, happen in the past with some other uh, companies because of the you know behavior in the past, particularly the ICO component, uh, and then kind of you move on, or would it be something more structurally significant than that? So that's very much an open question. Uh, speaking of open questions, I'm not sure if you have a view on this one, but this one comes to us from M.F. Hemingoff from the Real Vision platform. Uh, how much could BUSD's fall hurt Binance? I don't know if that's something you have an opinion on, but the question is essentially uh, about could this regulatory action, these enforcement actions that we're seeing out there against Paxos, uh, have an impact on the market more generally? Yeah, so Paxos has until year 2024 to wind, wind it down. So, you know, they have over a year to do that. And I would think that Binance would go out and just find a different back office to supply BUSD. So, mm. you know, I, I don't think it's a hurt Binance at all. Um, I think it's just a transition from Paxos to another provider. Here's another great question from Ralph Humphrey. Ralph always has great questions. Uh, does Brian's firm hedge their bankruptcy claims in any way, given what I believe perceive as a significant illiquidity with the claims, or do they believe they have enough margin for error that they don't have to? Yeah, well, we don't hedge at all. So we, um, our, our goal is to outperform Bitcoin. And after doing this for, like I said, you know, since 2014, the best way I've found to outperform Bitcoin is find, you know, these unique ways to buy Bitcoin at a discount. And so mm -hmm. we, we don't hedge out, you know, the, the Bitcoin risk there. So here's another follow up from Ralph, actually. What are the other areas in crypto uh, Brian is super pumped about? What are the other assets in the crypto landscape uh, that Brian is interested in? Uh, I think the same same question. It's uh, I think it's duped on my screen. But the question is basically, uh, what do you what else are you pumped about in the crypto space besides Bitcoin? Yeah, so this is a very like I could turn this into a one hour like talk, <laughs> but I might narrow it down for you. So like I said, 2014, I first learned about Bitcoin. Um, you know, was it you know I, my my question back then was it is it better to buy Bitcoin? Is it better to invest in companies? So I actually got into Coinbase back in 2014 and 15. I also invested in a company called Digital Currency Group back then, back in 2015. Um, I helped seed a company called Polychain Capital back in 2016, um, where I'm still, you know, part of the general partnership. And you know, when I look back at the equity investments that I made versus just owning Bitcoin it's better just to own Bitcoin. And I've gone back and forth between being a Bitcoin maximalist to being like, you know, being, you know, you need to diversify. And, you know, I'm back to being a Bitcoin maximalist again. Um, I, I think that on a risk adjusted basis, buying Bitcoin and holding it for the next 10 or 20 years is probably one of the best investments you can ever make. And you have to live through the volatility don't trade it. Think about it long term, um, and just buy and hold this digital property that is a scarce resource on the internet. And look at it as domain names. When domain names started back in the early '90s, there were only you know a few million people using the internet. So domain names were relatively cheap back then. You could buy a high quality domain name for thirty dollars. 
So Michael Saylor was doing that back then. He bought hope.com, michael.com, mike.com, um, voice.com. He bought up all these domain names, strategy.com. And he sold voice.com um, a little bit over a year ago for $30 million. He paid $30 for it, sold it 30 years later for $30 million. The reason it went from $30 to $30 million is because back then there were only a few million people using the internet. Today, there are billions of people using the internet. Think of Bitcoin the same way. Right now, there's a few hundred million people using Bitcoin. In 10 years, there's billions of people that are going to be using Bitcoin. And because it's a scarce asset, scarce digital property on the internet, it's just going to be worth more in the future than it is today if more people are using it. And so that I so that's what I would do. I would just, you know, for if you want to keep things simple and you know have a you know not have to you know think about this too hard, you know, just you know buy Bitcoin, hold it for the next 10 or 20 years, don't trade it, write it up, write it down, and just look at it as a permanent part of your you know of your portfolio that's in this scarce digital asset. Boy, very relevant to that point uh, is the discipline and focus required to hold an asset for 30 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I learned that lesson. Um, but, so I, I started off as a stockbroker back in 1991 with a company called AG Edwards and Sons. I was 22 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I went to, uh, his name was Leo Salmon. He was the most, you know, um, mature broker in our office. He had been with the company for like 60 years. And I went into his office. I was like, Leo, can you, can you, I'm new. Can you give me some advice or tips on, you know, you know, how I should you know, run my business for the next 30 years. Um, so I'm successful like you are. And he showed me a company called Berkshire Hathaway back then. <laughs> and Berkshire Hathaway, it was like $4,000 a share back in like 1991, 92. And I looked at him, I was like, Leo, you're crazy. I, like, no one's going to pay $4,000 a share for a company, you know, for like, you know, like, you know, Berkshire Hathaway. And that was 30 years ago. And I haven't looked recently, but, you know, last time I looked, Berkshire Hathaway was like $400,000 a share. Yeah. And so it went from 4000 to 400000 over the last 30 years. And if you would have just bought one share of Berkshire Hathaway, for $4,000 back then, you'd be sitting pretty today. And so that that's what I would do. Just buy Bitcoin, hold it for the next 10, 20, 30 years, pass it to your children, your great, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, and just look at it as like a permanent part of your you know family wealth. Brian, that's a great note to end on. Fantastic conversation. But before we go, I want you to give your final thoughts, key takeaways for our listeners and our viewers. The key takeaways, I think most people just need to learn more about what blockchain is, what Bitcoin is. And what I would suggest is that if you haven't spent at least 40 hours of research on this, you haven't spent enough time doing it. So I would um, recommend that you go to hope.com. Uh, Michael Saylor owns that website. He has dedicated it to Bitcoin education. And go to hope.com and educate yourself about what this new technology is and why this is important, not only to your family, but also to the world over the next you know, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years.
Yeah, by the way, as long as we're taking talking big picture here, I'll give you my key takeaways on this. You know, the two things that I'm most excited about today are the same things I was most excited about in 2000, which are innovation and growth. Uh, and to me, that there's no more industry, there's no industry in the world right now uh, that's more innovative or growing faster than the, di the digital asset, cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, ecosystem, and space. You know, obviously, we've got some headwinds from a regulatory perspective. Uh, you know, there may be some macroeconomic headwinds heading our way. Uh, but in terms of pure innovation uh, and growth in terms of adoption of new users, uh, I'm just incredibly excited about this space. And I hope to be here uh, for the next 20 or 30 years uh, if the gods are kind. And so uh, this is the thing that I find uh, just most interesting uh, for all of those reasons. Brian, such a pleasure to have you with us. Always enjoy these conversations, man. Thanks for asking me to be on, Ash. Well, thanks for coming back. Really a pleasure having you. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, like and subscribe and hit the notification bell, please. That way you will always stay up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis. If you're not a Real Vision Crypto subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Santiago Velez hosting Armanabat Kamalapur, uh, partner at Jones Day. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.